All right, and we're back. What you're about to hear now is the rest of Philip Cunliffe's interview with Helen Thompson, followed by our after party. This takes us to the penultimate question, uh, which is about nationhood. So I was fascinated by this because it's rare, I think, to find the identification, I mean, or at least in the stuff that I've been reading, it's rare to find the identification of the lack of nationhood or the disintegration of nationhood as a problem of for political mobilization. And particularly that you identify the problem not in terms of um, uh, affect so much, but in structural terms. So the fact that um, the disintegration of the Bretton Woods system incre- allowed not only kind of the famous story of how it allowed uh, countries to it not only that it allowed companies to offshore their production, but also that it allowed uh, states to move away from uh, citizens um, as a tax base and to rely on capital markets and how this kind of uh, disintegrates the nation as a political collectivity. So you mentioned the fact you're skeptical of the idea that the green energy transition or prospects of a green new deal can offer the basis of a renewed sense of political collectivity around the nation. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about that, about how you see the prospects for nationhood, given the story of energy that you tell um, in the book towards the end. I mean, one thing I think is true is, is that, particularly perhaps for different reasons in Britain and in the United States, that actually the net zero project has in part been conceived in political terms as a way of trying to rejuvenate what I would call economic nationhood after its disintegration from the 1970s um, onwards. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Green New Deal language was used in the United States um, for the the energy transition project there and that it came from the left of the Democratic Party because the original New Deal was very much a project of economic nationhood. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that was part of what is being tapped, was part of what was being tapped into with that, the idea that actually the energy transition itself could be used to recreate a national manufacturing sector in the United States and that that could be used to recreate manufacturing employment jobs at higher wages um, again, and it would serve some of the same political purpose in terms of creating some sense of national unity. I mean, one has to put the caveat right in there about the original New Deal that was quite racialized and it didn't actually include all American um, citizens, but that wouldn't obviously be the case this time um, round. And I think if you look in the case of Britain, that... Johnson's government has been quite keen on the idea that if you have you try to turn the United Kingdom into the, the Saudi Arabia of wind, as he's called it, you know, like several times, a lot of that involves what's going on up and down the East Coast, and that would unify Scotland economically with the northeast of England, yeah. um, for um, instance. So I think one of the attractions of the energy transition to in at least a number of Western democracies has precisely been because there's been a sense uh, that there is a problem um, when economic nationhood is absent. Uh, There is a problem when there isn't a national manufacturing base 
any longer. I mean, in terms of its absence, that's more true about the United Kingdom than it's true about um, the United States. And that this was a this was a way out. And I think that I would suggest that in 2019, in particular, so before the the pandemic um, came, that there was a sense in which net zero was the project for trying to address a whole set of economic and political problems simultaneously um, with um, each other. So I think that I'm not inherently sceptical about the idea that the energy transition can be used in these ways at the the abstract level. Um, What I would say is, is that if you just take the United States, that if you're going to have a green new deal and you're going to use it as a project of economic nationhood, you've pretty quickly got to run into the fact that China is the, the dominant manufacturer of solar panels. You've pretty quickly got to run into the fact that China dominates um, metal production and the supply chains around um, metal um, production and that you've got to do something about that if it's going to be done in the name of economic nationhood um, because otherwise you're just recreating uh, a new foreign a new foreign economic dependency and this time in the united states case on the power that you're treating now as a major geopolitical rival yeah so that takes us to a final question which is a bit more speculative and perhaps more of a personal um interest of mine but there's been some newspaper articles here and there about um, breakthroughs in fusion technology, and particularly some engineering breakthroughs. They've recently there were a few articles about how they finally managed to um, produce um, more energy out of the reaction than they put into it, and so on. And I wondered. Um, um, I mean, it's kind of a you know. Uh, I, I understand, obviously, you're not an engineering expert, um, and that it's all very speculative. But I wonder if you if you had any read or any take on some of those stories because it did seem to be quite concerted the way in which it was appearing in the press, and also um, I suppose you know whether you read it as froth or whether whether you think there is some actual hope that there could be a breakthrough and that it could be delivered on such a scale that perhaps our energy problems might, um, at least in the advanced world, that they might um, they might be solved by fusion? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a really important um, question. I would say two things that would make me cautious about getting too optimistic about um, nuclear fusion. The first is, is that like with, even if a technological breakthrough occurs such that um, what's been done at the moment, like lots been done in the last few months, could be done at scale. Um, there's still the fundamental question about the whether it can be done in an economically viable way. That technological yeah. breakthroughs are never like sufficient by themselves. I mean, in some sense, uh, shale oil was known about from the beginning of the 20th century. Jimmy Carter and Richard Nixon put a lot of hope in shale in the 1970s. It wasn't that there wasn't the technological capacity actually to do that is just that the cost of it in relation to what was technologically needed just made it a non-starter in economic terms. It's only when you move into the uh, monetary environment uh, of post-crash that uh, it becomes viable and not even then because it actually becomes profitable. So uh, I think that was the first thing I would say. I mean, the second thing I would say is, is that that obviously there's a a long history to hope being placed in nuclear fusion since at least the, um, the 1950s. And there's a, 
there's a long story uh there's, well, there's a long story of different moments when there's a lot of reporting about breakthroughs yes. taking place and then not nothing much um nothing much happens and i think what's interesting here is is that was actually true about nuclear power itself in the 19 you know like 50s i mean eisenhower famously says at one point that it's going to be so cheap um energy from nuclear power that we won't even bother need to measure it yeah. and that's obviously not the way that it turned out having said that it's also not the case that nuclear power has been a complete waste of time um, and that there's been a kind of boom bust with nuclear power from its original um, hopes to the falling away of confidence in it. I think nuclear power is on the way back um, at the moment. So I think what we're going to see is, is that we're going to be moving into a multi-energy world in which we'll be pursuing all these different options effectively um, at the same time. And maybe something will come through and be a game changer. Um, but I wouldn't want to, I mean, as I said, I'm not a technical energy person. I wouldn't want to say what that was. And I think if you looked at history, you wouldn't say that anybody could be that confident about um, when and where the technological breakthroughs might happen. And, and that comes back then to the point that it isn't just a question about the technological breakthrough. It's the question about whether it can be done at scale in a, in a vaguely economical way. Yeah. Well, um, ending, I suppose, on a cautious, maybe a cautiously optimistic or maybe cautiously pessimistic note, but um, that was uh, wonderful. So um, strongly just to, so that's uh, Helen Thompson's book, Disorder, out now with Oxford University Press and um, strongly commended to all listeners to get hold of it as soon as they can. So thank you very much for joining us, Alan. It's been a pleasure, Philip. I really enjoyed that. All right, listeners, we're back. It's the three of us, Alex, Phil and George, to discuss what we've just heard. I'm going to hand back over to Phil as he just did the interview. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, as you can tell, I hope, I was delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Helen because we been meaning to do it for a long time. And there was much more, actually, that we could have spoken about. But um, without wishing, you know, I would encourage, I would definitely encourage all of our listeners to read the book. It is this a single best kind of short account of um, geopolitics and energy and elements that we didn't really talk about in the interview, but also the intersection of international finance and democracy that I've read in that I've read in a while. Um, and one thing I think that, you know, touching on where we began, um, there is kind of a, there is, I think, kind of an easy faux materialism or materialism light on the left with a kind of, um, you know, a sneering dismissal of politics and an assumption, you know, like, oh, you think it's about human rights. In fact, it's all about oil or it's all about kind of um, interests or, you know, material, kind of a crude materialism. And one thing that I was reminded of by reading Helen's book and talking to her is that there is, if there is one single commodity about which you could make the case for a very basic materialism, having explanatory power for all sorts of things, then it um, then it's certainly oil, fossil fossil fuels more broadly, in terms of um, the sheer kind of necessity to industrial, to industrial modernity, industrial capitalism. And so one thing that comes across very strongly, and I guess this can, I mean, this is something I guess we can talk about a bit now, is the relationship between 
um, oil and the energy transition. So, for instance, I mean, one thing that she, which I didn't really, we didn't get the chance to talk about in great depth, but the Ukraine invasion that she mentions, she traces back, in fact, to 1956, um, which is when, after the failure of the Anglo-French invasion of Egypt with the Suez Crisis, and the fact that the Americans forced them into dependence on the Middle East, onto Middle Eastern oil, in turn, Western Europe had to turn to the Soviets, Soviet Russia at the time, for gas. And it's out of this German dependence on Soviet gas that you can trace the origins of the Ukraine crisis. And so that this Ukraine crisis can actually, and the even the invasion of Ukraine, that it's a historic kind of, its historic roots stretch right back into, into the Cold War. Um, and so it's something which has kind of been dormant there or has been kind of working its way out throughout this period. And so though I put it to her that the end of history was a period, the, this kind of benign period of liberal hegemony was a period that was floating on cheap oil. But, um, you know, it's possible to kind of cut up from the viewpoint of energy and oil, you could end up cutting up, cutting or slicing up the politics of the last hundred years or so in very different ways. Um, and from going from 1956, perhaps right up to the invasion of Ukraine um, at the moment, and it would look yeah. very differently. I No, I really like that question because it gets us a little bit beyond the sort of aha gotcha reductiveness of it's all about oil, which, you know, you alluded to the students who come in going, ah, it's all about oil, right? That determines um, world politics, but rather than just going, okay, well, Ukraine is just about oil. You know, it's like th that guy who turns up with their like one big theory about something, right? Um, and rather than seeing things as being multifactorial in which you have to properly weigh the the, the strength and, and the importance of different factors, you, it always comes back to this, aha, it's oil or whatever. But that I think um, alludes to, or that your question I think captures well, how you know, oil or cheap oil, for example, undergird so much of material production, which then provides for different ideological, political, institutional configurations. So it's not, you know, just a, a, a direct route, uh, route one from oil to whatever politics happens, right? It's There's mediations yeah. there. I mean, I think sure. you, you can call this the, I mean, I think it's a really good starting point, the kind of the Halliburton theory of IR, America invades countries for, for oil, or what I would call the crude oil theory, of um, mm. geopolitics nice, nice. if Good. you will yeah. um and i think but i think it's a kind of you know it's like in philosophy how you have the starting point is the skeptic who's just like oh but you, you know and they're kind of annoying right it's like oh but can we believe anything can we know anything it's like actually in some ways that should be the question that you have to answer like how is it not how is it not just about material resources and particularly about oil i think it is a good you know, I, I, I would, I would put, you know, myself in favor in general of, of uh, big theories and route one, uh, route one theorizing route one football. I mean, this is the quickest way to the, to the goal. Um, but no, I think it was good to have that as a starting point because obviously it does give you a, a specific lens, but obviously a limited one for analyzing some of the, you know, more recent and not just more recent, but as you said, as you were saying, Phil, since the fifties, at least the kind of the geopolitics of the West. Yeah, so I mean the you know the on the in the failure of um, Anglo-French imperialism in Suez, the French are pushed to cling on to Algeria, 
um, because oil is discovered in Algeria at that point, and there's a push to European nuclear power. And there's a famous speech by the head of the Euratom agency to the European Parliament where he says energy dependence leads to political dependence. Um, and both of these fail. And that, in fact, is a story which um, Helen probably doesn't tell. Um, the story of the decline of nuclear power um, perhaps isn't um, explained as as in as much detail as I would like. Um, but obviously, Algeria doesn't work out for the French either. And so Western Europe becomes increasingly dependent on Soviet Soviet gas um, and Soviet oil. And so and that, you know, that runs through until the until after the end of the Cold War. Um, the other element of it, which was important, I think, is also she mentioned the thing about the shale revolution. The technology has been around from the 70s, but it was only made viable um, in the era of quantitative easing. And so energy independence for the US, which is the dream of Nixon and Carter, is, is only achieved you know, many decades later. So that these kind of some of these struggles are only um, kind of they are only uh, well, they were only vindicated much later. But again, like I'm struck, I think, you know, you could tell you could tell a story of neoliberal, the rise and fall of neoliberalism in terms of the role of energy and specifically nuclear energy, I think. And I suppose that story is, um, you know, that story is maybe um, still to be told. Yeah, it did also make me think like the you know, if, if the end of history period was was floating on all of that, that lovely cheap oil, then who like who ended the end of history period? Because some some people would put this at 2016, for example, with Brexit and Trump. But this um, analysis might put it a little bit earlier. It's kind of this, um, you know, the, the spike of Chinese demand for, for oil in the mid noughties, which Helen talks about. This yeah. is the kind of you know, is it the, you've got a number of competing explanations there, but I, I kind of like the idea it was George W. Bush and Chinese oil demand. Um, that That's a kind of a, a competitor to Brexit and Trump for ending that that end of history period. Yeah, indeed. I, I, the, I guess the, the issue is that it's not, you know, it's not, again, a direct relationship, but cheap, plentiful energy underpins and undergirds so much that it at least buys you time, even if, for example, your... Um, whole political order is unable to really sustain itself over a long period, as we know. I mean, this is the argument, right, that the neoliberal arrangement was going to fall apart at some at some point. But of course, if you can suddenly find a bunch of, you know, cheap, uh, cheap energy, then that changes the game entirely. I mean, I, I just one one example of this, I know this from Brazil, where there's been the the pre-salt, the discovery of pre-salt, um, out, you know, kind of out in the ocean, um, which was feasible to drill for when oil prices were high. And there was a great expectation that suddenly Brazil would really deliver on its future because now it has all this oil, which will be able to, again, kind of underwrite so much other possibilities of uh, expanding industrial production, um, or even just funneling the proceeds of that as the left wanted to towards health and education. Um, and that just disappeared when oil prices crashed, you know, in, in 2014, which, um, which Helen Thompson actually referred to. Um, so it's, it is, um, yeah, it's not a direct relationship, but it's amazing how much it undergirds these things. One other note, I'm by chance reading a book, which also makes this historical argument around energy, um, and finance as well, looking at how the Cold War ended and Phil's strong recommendation for Helen's book uh, makes me think I really should be reading that alongside because um, it is What's curious. I think, huh? What's the book? The book in question is called Broken Promises, um, which looks at the end of the Soviet Union. And the interesting thing about finance and, and um, 
energy, which seem so diametrically opposed, but are probably the two major factors, is that there's one which is so material and embedded and local in the case of energy, and the other one which is so disembedded and immaterial in the case of finance. But effectively, those are the two main economic factors, I think, which um, drive our world so much. It's capital, right? it's capital and motion. It's energy motion it's kinetic energy of no it isn't no No. kinetic energy would be a hamster on a treadmill but anyway um yeah so i mean i think but the point is i mean you know cheap cheap energy um you know means inflation is low it means you know kind of um you can maintain help maintain living standards and also if you're it also kind of leads to questions of political independence in a very kind of basic in yes. a basic way, those yeah. questions which are being kind of um, are being raised and discussed at the moment. So, I mean, all of that gives you space. It gives you kind of political space in terms of just the basic mechanics of um, of ruling society. So, yeah. and, and that's why, like the left, I think, and it's a point we've made on this podcast, should be focused on creating as much as possible, wherever in whatever country you may be, as much cheap plentiful and ideally clean energy as possible, just because it does provide you so much greater autonomy than if you don't have that. Um, And so it's not just a kind of question of capitalist production, which should be left to the capitalists. It's none of our business. I think it has to be a core demand, a core focus. Yeah. And the, I mean, the element of this, which is also um, connected to the Ukraine crisis and is worth mentioning also, is the that Helen focuses on the growth of the euro dollar market um, over the course of the 1970s and the end of Bretton Woods. And here you have the case where the growth of the of dollars that were not formally contained or regulated by US by the US banking system was the basis in which states became increasingly independent of their citizens because they mm-hmm. could borrow um, without reliance on their citizens. And there you have the kind of the beginning of the erosion of um, that compact nation state that had emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War. And it ties in, in Helen's reckoning, it ties into Ukraine because with the 2007-2008 financial crisis, um, the US did not extend financial support to Ukraine. It's not in NATO. It's not in the EU. I suppose there was still the assumption it was partly in by default in Russia's sphere of influence. And the lack of that financial support for Ukraine in due course leads Ukraine um, or leads the EU and Russia into a bidding war for Ukraine, which eventually resolves itself in terms of the Russian invasion in 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. So, the intersection of um, Ukrainian of uh, Ukrainian poverty with the financial crisis of two thousand seven and eight is also the backdrop for um, is also the backdrop for the crisis, as well as the fact that Ukraine has been the transit point for Russian energy exports right back to the Soviet era. I don't know if it's just me, but I have the impression that there's more works now, and maybe it's just because of Helen Thompson's book and the book that I um, am reading currently. But other mentions that I've seen as well, that maybe it's the sort of eclipse of neoliberalism at the moment, which is making a lot of people look back to what has undergirded neoliberalism right from the start, beginning with the 1973 oil crisis and the 79 oil crisis, which radically changed everything with the channeling of the petrodollars into the euro money markets and the availability of cheap credit suddenly. And that just seems such a pivotal moment. And I don't know... I feel like it wasn't so discussed. I mean, I was aware of it, but I didn't accord it that much importance maybe until 
until more recently. So I, I don't know. I, I wonder whether there isn't a sort of intellectual moment right now where we're looking back and going, yeah, I actually, think you can kind of bookend right. this period now from 73 to, you know, 2020. I think it's probably right. I mean, certainly Adam Tews makes a great deal of it in his yes. book about the crisis um, and looking back to the, um, well, looking back to the 1970s, essentially. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure that's true. Um, because if you look at the crisis of 2007 and 8, you're forced to look back at the end of Bretton Woods. So I suppose that's been, um, you know, that's been part of the picture. So uh, do you guys have any other any thoughts about um, Helen's view of the energy transition? Because uh, I think she makes clear, perhaps this didn't come across so much in the interview, but she more or less vests her hopes in a Green New Deal, not only to manage the transition, but also expressly for its political, um, expressly for its political appeal. And the, she thinks that with the Biden administration's kind of pitch for the Green New Deal, that it's the start of a new era in which politicians will try to incorporate those layers of the working class that have been systematically excluded um, from political influence uh, since the 1970s. And so she sees that as, um, though she's very cautious, I mean, obviously she's very cautious about it. She isn't gung-ho about the green, you know, she isn't like a Jacobin kind of all in for the Green New Deal. But nonetheless, she sees that as kind of the place where there might be some optimism. What did, what did mm. you guys make of that? I think stepping away from it and, you know, leaving aside any criticism we might have about specific elements of the Green New Deal or its packaging, which we've discussed on this podcast many times before, I think realistically it is the only realistic strategy on the part of the establishment to in some way remodel the current order without, um, in an orderly fashion, I suppose, um, both in terms of climate change and in terms of the seriously flagging legitimacy of those states, um, and, you know, various populist uprisings and so on. Um, so I think that's right in terms of providing, you know, green jobs and a massive build out of, um, you know, new green infrastructure. But I think it's a very, it's still a long way away. I, I don't think, and I think Helen alludes to this, that, you know, the amount of resources needed to dedicate to that, it would be very, very serious. And we're not seemingly at the stage where any politician is willing to, do what it takes to make that happen. Um, not that they're not unwilling to spend huge sums of money. Of course, we've seen that with the bailouts in 2008 and with the pandemic bailouts to an even larger degree. But to direct that towards some form of productive investment, state-led, um, we're still a little way from, from that. And I somehow feel that we'll need some even bigger dislocation to actually force that to happen. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. No, I mean, I think it was, I, I was very convinced by the idea that you know to understand this you need to link it to the disintegration of the nation as a you know this is a problem for political mobilization you know structural problem not not an affectual um one and that the green new deal is is, is kind of an attempt to um i guess kind of reinvigorate economic nationhood this is the way that, that helen was sort of talking about it um, after its collapse from from the 70s you know the new deal was a project of economic nationhood and the green new deal is the is the foremost candidate for the as you're saying for the establishment to to try to solve this you know this problem of a decreasing tax base and a you know i guess um investment of of various sorts in in the nation so i think it was a um you know 
it was a, a good discussion because I think that is a really important part of it. This idea that you want to try to recreate a national manufacturing base and national unity thereby. Um, and the, the Green New Deal, I think I hadn't really seen there was that that connection before. Still critical of it for a whole range of reasons. But I think that was a, that was something which she definitely convinced me on. I mean, and I think in terms of, you know, what, what would force it to happen, I don't think it necessarily needs a massive social movement to push it through. Um, you know, of course, there's green protests in favor of and whatever. And but that, you know, n- nothing has the sort of leverage at this stage necessary anyway to drive it through. It could well, just be it could just be done through uh, through sort of inter elite wrangling. But for elites to have for some faction of the political elites to really drive it through at the scale that it would need, there would need to be some external element which would sharpen minds and force people to actually do it. Now, maybe the fallout of the Ukraine conflict um, and the various forms of kind of deglobalization that are going on, uh, which will be furthered indeed by uh, this moment and excluding Russia from from large parts of the global economy, maybe that will, you know, the dislocations and rising inflation emerging from that will be enough to drive some faction of capital to go, yes, this is what we need to do now. It seemed to me that her her argument was that, or that the way that she framed it was the energy transition is going to take time um, and we can't assume that life will be the same afterwards. And that I think is the thing that that does need to be sold to people. And maybe that's it. Maybe it is a consequence of COVID or Ukraine that, that this, you know, she talks about the pattern of public and private transportation, like to accept that there will be these um these changes and you know you might have said that this is things getting worse you know people will there will have to be a massive ideological effort to try to persuade people that this isn't things getting worse um and that is a i think part of the challenge is actually getting you know it is the only tactic to get people behind the green new deal essentially you know this has that there is no alternative or 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 something like that because that's quite a big well, but thing things to will accept. get worse. Things are getting worse, right? So you so don't that, necessarily this need to. But this so this connects directly to the geopolitics of the moment because it seems to me like it provides perfect cover for um, you know for a push towards energy independence again. Um, Boris Johnson has just announced that he wants twenty five percent of Britain's nuclear Britain's energy to come from nuclear power by the middle of the century or maybe even earlier, perhaps 2040. Um, at the same time as they're investing, you know, they're opening up North Sea oil again, as well as investing heavily in the idiotic wind farms and all of that. And I mean, all of that seems so, you know, the cost, it seems kind of, you know, the geopolitical element then of the new Green New Deal is um, externally conflict with Russia. And internally, perhaps, you know, will require kind of persistent, persist perpetuation of Russophobia. Um, that seems to be like, at least, you know, if we're going to have energy independence and maybe a more rational kind of energy um, supply, which to my mind can only be nuclear, then the cost of that, you know, the cost that is being imposed on us already is a geo- geopolitical confrontation with Russia, which necessarily means empowering um, the blob, essentially, in foreign policy terms, who are happy to kind of toy with the idea of nuclear war, and at least in the sense of no-fly mm-hmm. zone and risk escalation with Russia over Ukraine. Um, so, the co- you know, it seems to me the political costs of, of the energy transition are already here, right? And they do seem already, I mean, extraordinarily high in the indulgence yeah. that's given in public debate to a no-fly zone, for instance. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that that follows very, 
yeah very clearly but i guess the the question is if i think nuclear is one option but not a guaranteed one so what happens uh moving away from gas towards solar but china dominates solar panel production so does that mean you know moving moving towards allying with with china i mean there's a there's a whole i think that's you know the, the way that you framed it like some of these costs are already they're already either already here or they're already being accounted for so yeah i think um there's definitely a clear link between you know the geopolitics and the and the demands of moving away from from gas in this in this case all right well should we leave that there we hope you've enjoyed this i think um well, interestingly, this dovetails quite nicely as well with the recent discussion we had on this podcast when we had uh, Michael Lind on, um, who himself speculated, uh, someone he is himself someone interested in reshoring a lot of production, and speculated about the need for geopolitical competition to drive that forward. Um, so, you know, ultimately, in some ways, if, if this is something that you're interested in or that you hope happens, kind of waiting for some deus ex machina um, from the from the outside rather than kind of any social movement uh, in, internal to those countries actually driving that through, which I think um, is something that we have to actually ponder. Um, but anyway, that'll be for another time. We hope you've enjoyed this and thanks for listening. Catch you later. Bye bye.